We come this evening to a consideration of the teachings of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith on the subject of God's covenant, chapter 7. It has always been traditional in the Reformed faith, in general, to place great emphasis upon the subject of a covenant of grace as the source of eternal salvation, and in particular, wherein the Baptists have remained true to their faith to set forth first of all in the London Confession, and then the Philadelphia, and in the expressions of faith even prior to that time, that the Baptists have always placed great emphasis upon the fact that salvation is of the Lord. It is of God's grace from beginning to ending, and God's dealings have always been toward men in terms of covenant character. I believe that it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Understand what is meant by the word covenant, and you would have become a theologian. God has always dealt with the human race through covenant relationship, from the first to the last, beginning with Adam when he placed him in the Garden of Eden, revealing his covenant of grace from degree to degree after Adam's fall through Noah, Abraham, Moses, the children of Israel, David himself, and then eventually in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, we have the classic New Testament passage of Scripture on this subject, beginning with verse 20, reading through verse 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I do not believe that you can adequately understand the Bible unless you adequately understand the subject of the covenant of grace. The subject of the covenant of grace has not been more adequately set forth in brief terms than in the Philadelphia Confession, chapter 7. In section 1 of chapter 7, we learn, first of all, that a covenant on God's part is absolutely necessary because of man's failure under the first covenant, which was a covenant of works given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. We read section 1, chapter 7. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, that is, God coming down to meet us in our need, 
which he hath been pleased to express the next statement by way of covenant. In other words, that statement is simply that because of the great distance between God and man, not metaphysically, that is, not in scale of being, but because of man's sin. It is absolutely impossible that man could ever gain the favor of God through his own works, although he owes God obedience. Therefore, if man is to be saved, it must be God voluntarily condescending to man by way of a covenant. Now let us consider two or three things brought out in this statement. First of all, it is declared in this statement that there is a basic difference between the Creator and the creature. The covenant or the confession of faith says the distance between God and the creature. Nowhere have we found those of our founding fathers who gave to us our doctrinal statements falling into the era of believing that man is nothing more than an extension of God as some form of cosmic divinity. These men did not fall into the quagmire of evolutionary theory. They believed in a personal God who was self-existent and who created all things and stands separated from his creation. Therefore, man is not divine. He does not have a spark of divinity within him. He is not some extension of some world force that men call God, but instead man is a creature, a creature simply created by God as the divine creator. In the second place, it is stated in section 1 of the Confession that in spite of the fall of man into sin, which fall we have already considered showing the depth of man's fall into sin and depravity, that man still owes God obedience. Now this is a very important principle of divine truth, regardless of the fact that man is a sinner, regardless of the fact that man is under the wrath and displeasure of God Almighty regardless of the fact that man by nature does not seek after the Lord, nor, nor does he know the true God of the Bible, man as a creature of God in spite of the fall still owes God obedience. We read in the Confession of Faith that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, in other words, by the very fact that God has created man, that man is creature and God is creator, man owes God obedience. You say, well, what degree of obedience does man owe God? He owes God absolute and perfect obedience in mind, 
in motive, in deed, and that habitually. Now, we need to make a distinction between man's inability and man's responsibility. Just because man, by sin, has become unable to obey God, just because man, by sin, has no pleasure to obey God, has not removed his responsibility. In other words, because man has destroyed himself by sin, has not removed God's right to demand of man everything that was man's responsibility at the time of his having been created in perfection. When God created Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden, he created Adam and us in him with a full ability in all faculties of personality to obey God's law in every detail to the extent of perfection and to the extent of well-pleasing unto the Lord. However, by Adam's willful transgression of God's law, he rendered himself and us in him unable by that sin to obey God. In view of the fact that all of the faculties of our personalities have come under the damaging effects of sin. Sin has blinded our understanding so that we don't know the God of the Bible apart from the illuminating work of God the Holy Spirit. Sin has twisted and perverted the affections so that we love self and the creature more than we love God. Sin has brought the will into bondage so that we will not do that which is pleasing to God. We have no will to choose that which is God's will. However, because man is not able to please God, does not remove his responsibility. For example, I may sign a contract with you in which you obligate yourself to fulfill a certain task on my behalf in a given time, and so I pay you to do the job. In the meantime, you become inebriated through drunkenness to the extent that you fall out on the job and can't do it. Now, because you have rendered yourself unable to complete the contract does not relieve you of the responsibility. So in the light of the law, I can bring you into court and judge you on the account of your failure because the inability resides within yourself and not within God. So inability does not remove responsibility. And because man cannot please God does not mean that God does not have the right to demand of him absolute obedience to his law. However, as is stated in this section, man left to himself regardless of his responsibility, on the account of his inability, could never do that which is well-pleasing unto the Lord. 
In other words, man, even at his very best, continues to plunge himself deeper into debt to God because even in his best of works he is motivated from selfishness rather than from the glory of God, and so he cannot merit salvation. So if man is to be saved, if any are to be delivered from the bondage of sin, it must be because God condescends to save the sinner. The only way in which God can condescend to save the sinner is on the grounds of grace. And his grace, his unmerited free favor, is in the form of an eternal covenant that he drew up between himself and the second person of the triune Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. So salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by God's mercy. And so man, with all of his trying, cannot save himself. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. And I want you to see here what is said, even if man did obey God or if man could obey God. Let's take a hypothetical case. Let's take someone out of this congregation. I'm always picking on Don Davidson, so I'll pick on him again. Let's suppose that Don Davidson is exactly what I think he is and what his wife Barbara knows he's not, the best man in the church, one of the finest persons that's ever lived, upright in every way. Now, see, I have a high estimation of him in spite of what Barbara tells me about him. But she doesn't have that estimation. But now let's suppose that Donald started out tomorrow and he obeyed God's law, not only in precept but in principle as well, because precept is not sufficient. The Apostle Paul could say, as far as precept is concerned, I have kept the law. Paul could say, I have not murdered anybody. I have not stolen anything. I have not worshipped idols and so on. But when it got down to the principle of coveting, he said, I have coveted and so I've stolen. But let's suppose that he's obeyed in precept and in principle, that he's done everything that God would have required of him beginning tomorrow in keeping the law. All right, in the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 17 and verse 10 we read, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, this should be your attitude, say, we are unprofitable servants. But if he has done everything that God requires of him, why should he say that he's an unprofitable servant? because the next statement says we have done that which was our duty to do. In other words, he's only done that which was required of him to begin with. If a man takes care of his family, feeds them well, clothes them, gives them a home, and is reasonable in his behavior toward them, does he deserve to be brought before the Congress of the United States and given the Congressional Medal of Honor? 
You'd laugh. You'd say, why, he's done only what he's supposed to have done as a married man. So if man could obey God, and if man did obey God, he would still have to stand back and say, I deserve nothing, I merit nothing. There's nothing to my credit because even in all of this, I've only done that which was my duty to begin with. But that which aggravates man's condition is that he not only does his duty, but he fails in doing his duty. He plunges into sin, refusing even to attempt to do that which is his duty, so aggravating his guilt before God and bringing himself more deeply under the judgment and the wrath of God. So from all this we see that God never, never intended works to save anybody. You say, but what about Adam? Well, my dear friends, when God created Adam, he was already righteous. He didn't need saving. So if Adam had obeyed God's law perfectly in the Garden of Eden, he would have become established in righteousness, but it would not have saved him. He would have only been established in that which God created him to be. Once a man becomes a sinner, the question of salvation by works, by personal merit, is out of the question. Because even if man did obey the law of God, he is only doing that which already is his duty. So when we consider man as a guilty sinner, Man having broken God's law, man who is responsible before God Almighty to fulfill God's law in every detail, then we see that if man is to be saved, God must take the initiative. It must be an act of his grace and so grow out of an eternal purpose. And when we talk about God's covenant of grace, we are talking about God's eternal purpose of salvation, wherein God determined to save a people from before the foundation of the world. Now, if our Arminian friends, I don't call them brethren, but if our Arminian friends, the free willers who talk about salvation being a cooperation of man with God, could ever grasp this principle concerning law, obedience, and works, they would see that salvation is not conditional, that Jesus Christ did not come into the world merely to remove obstacles out of the way so that men could be saved if they only wanted to be. I'll tell you this, if Jesus Christ has only removed obstacles out of the way so that men can be saved if they want to be, and it's strictly on the condition of their wanting to be and cooperating with God in the matter of salvation, Jesus Christ need not have come. No one will ever be saved, because man by nature does not want to be saved God's way. Man wants to go to heaven, yes, that's true. Man does not want to go to hell, yes, that's true. But man wants to go to heaven on his terms. And he wants to avoid hell on his terms. He does not want to go on God's terms. So this brings us to the second point, and that is not only if men are to be saved was it absolutely necessary that God 
draw up from before the foundation of the world a covenant of grace, whereby he would plan and determine the salvation of men, but it has pleased the Lord to make such a covenant of grace. In other words, not only is it necessary that God save men on terms of grace, and that from an eternal principle, but God has done that very thing. So in section 2 of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, this is brought out very clearly by those who brought together these words expressing this doctrine in such precise language. We read and note the words carefully. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall. See how accurate that language is? God, God did not force man to fall. The fall was in the purpose of God. It was in the will of God, but God didn't hold a gun on Adam and tell him to fall. Man fell because he wanted to. Man sinned because he wanted to. Man rebelled against God because he wanted to. So, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by the fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners, that is, he gives the free invitations of the gospel to sinners, life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are, and you should underline this statement, promising, giving the free offer, the free invitations to all sinners, but promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. In other words, any sinner is invited. Every sinner is invited that hears the gospel, but no sinner is willing to come to Christ. No sinner wants to come to Christ until he's made willing by the Holy Spirit that is given by God. When a man wants to be saved, when he is made willing, then this becomes the evidence that God has ordained him to eternal life. So look at the several things brought out. First of all, that by man's fall into sin, he has brought himself under the curse of the law. Galatians 3.10 is a scripture given, and Romans 3.20 and 21 another, where it is said that if a man does not continue in all the law, to do every detail of the law, that he's broken that law, and so is under the curse of the law. Now, my dear friends, the law was never given to save sinners. Will you underline that in your mind? Take your indelible pencil and just underline it in your mind. In the frontal lobe, where it won't be forgotten, the law was never given to save sinners. That's not the purpose of the law. Take your Bible and see what it says about the law. It says the law gives a knowledge of sin. 
It says the law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It says the law condemns us or curses us, but nowhere is it given to save sinners. And yet today we have sinners running all over this country because of their hallucinations given to them by uh, some uh, minister who claims to be a preacher of Jesus Christ who's passing out spiritual uh, drug pills from the pulpit saying, if you'll be sincere and do the best you can and love your neighbor, then God will save you. Well, he won't. I'll tell you that right off hand. You can be sincere, do the best you can, go love your neighbor, give away everything you've got, live in poverty, and God still won't save you if that's the reason you're doing those things. Salvation is not by law works. All the law can do is act like a mirror and show you that you're a dirty, ugly, distorted, sick bum in the face of God. There's nothing about you that God needs. There's nothing about you that God wants. It's only by grace that he looks down at you and me in our miserable sinfulness and says, I'll clean them up, I'll make them into what I want them, and I'll save them. Now note in the next place that from this statement, the covenant of grace was an act of divine sovereignty. It says that it pleased the Lord to do this. It's something that God himself has done. In other words, God could have left the whole human race in sin, could have judged all on the account of their sin, could have sent the human race to hell, and still would have been a just and holy God. Do you think God needs us? I get so aggravated with these uh, sickly, anemic preachers, and I'll tell you right now, they're just about spiritually uh, what I am physically when it comes to anemia. They don't have enough spiritual blood to get them through a sermon. Getting up and saying, but God needs you and God wants you. I think the number one tune in the nation today and it's a catchy tune. Anybody that likes music would like the tune because it's, it's a, it's a foot stomping tune. It's catchy. And that's put your hand in the hand of the man. So what do the words say? The words say that when this, who this is or whoever it was, learn how to pray at about the age of seven from their mother. That mother told them one day there was going to come a time in which there's going to be room in heaven. <laughs> well, I tell you, that's the worst theology I've heard in my life. Now, it might be good for foot stomping, but it's bad for Bible teaching. And all of the emphasis is on the humanity of Christ. You wouldn't know that he was God, would you? Put your hand in the hand of the man. Well, let me tell you something. If he's just the man of Galilee, you're in tough shape. If he was just a man of Galilee that could calm the sea, you're still in tough shape. And there's coming a day in which there's going to be room in heaven, meaning that God failed somewhere. Somebody let him down. 
He'd fixed them a cabin over in the corner of Glory Land, and they didn't quite make it. Then things were in bad shape. Thank God that's not the God of the Bible. We don't have that kind of spiritual anemia when we examine the teachings of the Word of God. God is a God of sovereignty, and He doesn't need you, and He doesn't need me. He didn't have anybody in heaven but Himself in the persons of His of, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost in their immensity that would have filled all eternity. And, brother, that's about all the room there is. He didn't need us. But out of His sovereign grace, He made a covenant that He wouldn't send all of us to hell because we deserve to go there. I don't see why in the world you complain about God sending anybody to hell if God did with you what he ought to do, he'd send you to hell. Everybody deserves to go to hell. Nobody has a claim on God, but out of his good mercy, out of his sovereign grace, he made a covenant and he saved some, not because he needed them, but because he chose to do so, because it pleased him. It pleased. And then it's pointed out that this salvation is freely and sincerely offered to sinners. I've never read the Lamb's Book of Life, you see. I don't know who's going to heaven, you see. I'd probably make a blunder. I'd probably pick the wrong ones out. And I'd say, well, now these are going to heaven along with me, and we'd probably all end up in a ditch somewhere. I'm glad God does the picking out. Because he knows, you see. But I don't know who's going to heaven. I don't know who's going to be saved, but God does. But God says the way that I'm going to save those that are going to heaven is by raising up men and by the foolishness of preaching, bring them to faith. And the only way we can bring them to faith is preach to everybody. And then somebody's going to hear us one day. They're going to say, listen, preacher... You talk about sinners. Why, I'm a sinner. You must be talking about me. And somebody will be saved. When a man finds out, everybody, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the only warrant that you need to come to Christ is the fact that you're a sinner. But if it was left right there where most in the world leave it today, you know, it's up to man. He can take it or leave it. God's in the bargaining business. Like some vendor down in Mexico at his bargaining counter. You're trying to out-talk him. And you can take it or leave it. Oh, no. No, 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 no. But the confession says that God must take the initiative in the application of that salvation or none would ever come. So he says that though this offer of the gospel is to everybody, and that's not contradictory, nevertheless, he promises to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Turn to John chapter 6 and verse, verses 44 and 45. Because if God didn't make you willing to believe, you'd never believe. 
I'll tell you one thing. I was not chasing after the Lord when he saved me. I was going in the opposite direction, and he stopped me. Now look at John chapter 44, or chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. Now I want you to put a circle around the word can, C-A-N. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Christ didn't say no man may come, that's permission. He said no man can come, that's ability. Nobody's got the ability to come to me except my Father, which sent me, draw him. Now look at verse 45, it's written in the prophets. Here's how they're drawn. And they shall be all taught of God. They'll find out who the true God is, every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. That's believing. Everybody's heard the truth of the gospel with the ear of the heart, not just with intellectual consent, and learned have come. Now let me give you another scripture, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. A classic verse of scripture. Now this is the Bible. Take it or leave it, but it's the Bible. Psalm 110. Look at verse 3. Thy people. That says God has a people, does it? Thy people, what? Shall be willing in the day of thy power. In other words, that statement is that unless God exerts a power, men will not be willing to come to it. But he makes his people willing. I'm thankful for that because if the results were dependent on me, we'd be in sad shape. God's responsible for the results. Don't you ever go out of this church criticizing this preacher because of results. Now, there, there are plenty of things that you can criticize him about and be in safe territory. But the results belong to God. Now, I preach the Word of God, and you know that I do. I bear witness to the Word of God. The only thing is, I'm honest enough not to use the old tricks that I used to use before God showed me that he was sovereign. See, when I started out preaching, I bought that book that every young preacher buys, 101 Invitations. And, brother, I was a youth evangelist. I held youth revivals when I was attending Howard College all over this country, and if we packed in any less than 50 young people in five nights, ten a night, we felt we were failures, and I put into practice all 100 of those invitations. I'd get you down the aisle on something or you'd be too embarrassed to stay. And pretty soon, God took my little bag and cut a hole in it, let the tricks fall out, showed that I wasn't a thing in the world but a sideshow circus standing up in the name of Jesus, putting on a program, getting people down a church aisle, walking away, saying, boy, that church got revived, and then you go back and you couldn't find any of them left. But when God makes a man willing, that man will never get away. The results will be genuine. I want them to be God's results. I don't want them to be Pharaoh Griswold's results. 
I've had my results. It's like old Dwight L. Moody walking down the streets of Chicago, a drunk staggered up to him and, and said, Why, hello, Mr. Moody. And Moody looked at him and he said, I don't believe that I've had the pleasure. Oh, yes, he said, You know me. He said, I'm one of your converts. He said, You must be. You certainly are not the Lord's. And that was the case, you see. Now, I want you to note, and here is the whole heart of the matter, in the time that remains in section 3, that this covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. Section 3. We read in chapter 7 of the Philadelphia Confession, section 3, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament, and it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect, and it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all of the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and a blessed immortality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God with those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocence. Did you know those words were adopted in 1869 in London, England, by the Baptists of that nation? And when those Baptists came over to this country in 1744 in Philadelphia, they adopted those same principles. Today you ask the average Baptist, if you, you know what Philadelphia Confession of Faith is? Never heard of it. They sure don't know the contents of it, I'll tell you that. But they uh, like to go around bragging. But Baptists don't have creeds. That's nonsense. You know what the word creed means? It means I believe. Everybody's got a creed. He might have it in his mind, he might have it written down, but everybody believes something. Even those who believe nothing have a creed. Their creed is nothing. But the Baptists have confessions of faith. And it's about time they got back to these confessions and find out what we are supposed to believe and what our churches were built on. Then we get rid of a lot of this nonsense that's going on in the name of religion today. Matter of fact, we wouldn't have any of these uh, hotshot uh, snapcrackers standing in our pulpits encouraging people to wear the sign of the Antichrist stuck on the end of their nose as a religious symbol. I wouldn't wear one of them on the end of my nose or anywhere else because I don't believe in the upside-down broken cross that was the sign of Nero that symbolized anti-Christianity. You know, you'd better wake up. What does the Bible say? The Bible says when they shall start saying, Peace, 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 then comes the end. That's all we hear today, peace, peace. The peace symbol here and the peace symbol there. It's a sign of the second coming. Now, I want to quote some words from you, and the reason for you, and I want to quote these words because I want you to take the words of, of somebody that you'll listen to. I want you to see that I'm not the only fellow that was a Baptist who believed in this stuff. But before we do, I want you to look at a scripture. First of all, turn over to the book of Second Timothy, where we have the eternal covenant of grace. Second Timothy. 
chapter 1, verse 9. Look at the words now. It says, Who hath saved us? God has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works. That clear? That just as clear as it can be. Do you know? Do you know as moronic and as unintelligent uh, is the caliber of what's written in the Birmingham News? Anybody who could read and understand that paper could understand what's written here. It says God saved us not by works. That's as clear as it could be, isn't it? Not by works. Look at the next statement. But according to his purpose and grace. How did he save us? On purpose, out of grace. That's the covenant of grace. Now look at the next statement. Which was given us, which purpose, which purpose of grace was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the world began. Isn't that clear? That's so clear. I don't know what people do with verses like that when they come across. So clear. I think it's so clear that they stumble over it. Now, the man I want to quote from is Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached a hundred years ago. Greatest Baptist preacher that ever lived. But listen to what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, What were the stipulations of this covenant, this eternal purpose? They were somewhat in this wise. God had foreseen that man, after creation, would break the covenant of works, that however mild and gentle the tenure upon which Adam had possession of paradise, yet that tenure would be too severe for him, and he would be sure to kick against it and ruin himself. God had also foreseen that his elect ones, whom he had chosen out of the rest of mankind, would fall by the sin of Adam, since they as well as the rest of mankind were represented in Adam. The covenant, therefore, had for its end the restoration of the chosen people. And now we may readily understand what were the stipulations. On the Father's part, thus runs the covenant. I cannot tell you it in the glorious celestial tongue in which it was written. I am fain to bring it down to the speech which suiteth to the ear of the flesh and to the heart of a mortal. Thus, I say, runs the covenant in lines like these. I, the most I, Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be by him washed from their sins, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself because I can swear by no greater that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them will I forgive through the merit of the blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. Thus runs that glorious side of the covenant. The Holy Spirit also is one of the high contracting parties on this side of the covenant, gave his declaration. I hereby covenant, saith he, 
that all whom the Father giveth to the Son I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption, and I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuges of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them, and they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless. This was the one side of the covenant, which is at, the very, at this very day being fulfilled and scrupulously kept. As for the other side of the covenant, this was the part of it engaged and covenanted by Christ. He thus declared and covenanted with his Father. My Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people will I keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness, which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of all my people. Thou shalt exact their debts on me, the chastisement of their peace. I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of the law, and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at thy right hand, and I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of those whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. But I will bring all my sheep, of whom by my blood thou hast constituted me the shepherd. I will bring every one safe to thee at last. Thus ran the covenant. And now, I think you have a clear idea of what it was and how it stands, the covenant between God and Christ, between God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son, as the covenant head and representative of all God's elect. I have told you as briefly as I could what were the stipulations of it. You will please to remark, my dear friends, that the covenant is, on one side, perfectly fulfilled. God the Son has paid the debts of all the elect. He has for us men and for our redemption suffered the whole of wrath divine. Nothing remaineth now on this side of the question except that he shall continue to intercede that he may safely bring all his redeemed to glory. On the side of the Father, this part of the covenant has been fulfilled to countless myriads. God the Father and God the Spirit have not been behind hand in their divine contract. And mark you, this side shall be as fully and as completely finished and carried out as the other. Christ can say of what he promised to do, it is finished. And the like shall be said of all the glorious covenanters. All for whom Christ died shall be pardoned, all justified, all adopted. The Spirit shall quicken them all, shall give them all faith, shall bring them all to heaven, 
and they shall, every one of them, without let or hindrance, stand accepted in the Beloved in the day when the people shall be numbered and Jesus shall be glorified. I close with this final remark that was also made by Spurgeon as to the importance of the doctrine of the eternal covenant of grace, especially to our faith. Spurgeon said, and these are his words, I'm glad he said them so that I could read them. If I should say them, someone would be offended. But he said exactly what I believe. Spurgeon said, I believe the man who is not willing to submit to the electing love and sovereign grace of God has great reason to question whether he's a Christian at all. For the spirit that kicks against that is the spirit of the devil and the spirit of the unhumbled, unrenewed heart. May God take away out of your heart the enmity to his own precious truth and reconcile you to it and then reconcile you to himself through the blood of his Son, which is the bond and seal of the everlasting covenant. Words could not be stronger, yet they could not be clearer, and certainly not truer. For Spurgeon preached in the tradition of the London Confession of Faith, which was adopted by his church, and stayed faithful to the teachings of the Word of God declaring the doctrines of sovereign grace. This is our iron tonic. This is that which will cure our churches of spiritual anemia and give us courage and spine and backbone and fortitude in these days of compromise. May the Lord bless this message to our hearts.